Hey, so this is uh, Michael Hansen here, Ebster Ambassador and founder of Growth Genie. Um, so really excited to introduce you to what is gonna be the first of 12 episodes of the Sales Leadership All Access Series. So over the next 12 weeks, we're gonna have four sales leaders every week. So that's uh, 48 in total coming onto the show. And uh, yeah, really excited to one, learn from these sales leaders and to get all your insights and questions um, to them. So we've got uh, a few different topics we're going to be covering today. Uh, so the overriding theme is remote selling to a remote buyer. Um, so we're firstly going to cover how do you train, manage and onboard remotely? How do you coordinate with different stakeholders? So say you're doing an account-based sales or marketing model, people are in different locations, they're not all in one office. So how do you get around that? How do you scale a remote sales team? And you know how things changed for this whole remote work shift. How has it actually changed the the buying process and the sales process as well? And then finally, the tools, technique, and technology for remote selling we'll be covering at the end. So I think we should have a, a new slide coming any minute, which I'm just waiting for. There we go. So um, very excited as we've got four brilliant guests today with um, vast sales experience uh, between them. Um, so I'm just going to introduce everyone one by one and uh, yeah, it'd be great to hear a little introduction from all of you. Uh, so I'll start with the person who's closest to me in terms of geographic location. So uh, Buki uh, Mosaka, over to you. Hi everyone. Yeah, my name is Buki Mosaka and I'm the founder of Rose Acad, which stands for Results Oriented Sales Academy. And essentially, we're a corporate development and sales training practice. And our focus, my focus in life is to help clients get more prospects, close more sales and grow existing uh, business. And that tends to focus around um, everything from prospect management, uh, strategic and tactical selling uh, to uh, management development and obvious and, and, and prospecting, actually picking up the phone and securing meetings and different permutations. Our clients tend to be every, anything from FTSE 500 to mid-market and small companies. And uh, yeah, we've been doing this for nearly 20 years um, and we do it globally all over the world. Awesome, thanks Bucky. Um, and yeah, over to you, uh, Jerry Hill. Hey guys, good to be here. Um, so I'm leading Connect and Sales expansion out of the US into Europe at the moment. Um, for those who aren't initiated, Connect and Sell is the world's only conversation weapon. We eliminate the waste and the frustration that prevents your best salespeople from using the phone effectively or even using the phone at all. Um, more importantly, and I think for today's discussion, we're actually one of the pioneers of a remote first working culture and have been remote for 10 years now so we've been curating some best practices and some thinking around how to make work from home fun efficient and practical for your reps but give leaders the visibility and control that they need to be able to potentially address some of the topics that we've got in the agenda today so really excited to participate on that basis thanks jerry yeah, I've, uh, I think Ebster used Connect and Sell, and I've, it's something that I've, I've used myself, so I can attest to some of the things that, that Jerry said. Um, Mark, over to you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. Um, so my name's Mark Colgan, and I'm the co-founder of Speak On Podcast, which is a podcast booking agency, but I previously ran Task Drive, which was all about 
lead sourcing and data enrichment. So I had the unique opportunity to see hundreds of outbound prospecting campaigns, which has led to uh, a more recent contract of mine where I'm leading the outbound prospecting coach via the Sales Impact Academy. Uh, but I'm dialing in today from Tenerife as I, I live and work remotely. And the past two companies that I've been working for have been remote first. So they've always been built as remote. So hopefully looking to share some of the, the lessons learned from that experience. Yeah, uh, Mark is someone that always seems to be working from some exotic location. So very jealous <laughs> of his uh, remote lifestyle. And uh, finally, over to uh, Wendy, who's in New York. Well, thank you. And hi, everyone. I'm Wendy Weiss. Uh, my company, I am the president of coldcallingresults.com. And uh, we are a sales training and coaching consultancy. We work with underperforming sales teams and turn them into rock stars. And uh, you know how when you go into a sales meeting, you're the team leader, the sales manager, and your team is there and they all say to you, oh, you know, they're not producing and they say, well, we need better leads and we need to do more social media. Nobody's doing anything and COVID and can't really work from home. It's too hard. And uh, they have all these reasons and you start to think that you're losing your mind. Well, that is the problem that we solve. And people that do, do our programs are doubling and tripling their numbers. So I'm happy to be here today and uh, back to you, Michael. Awesome. Thanks, Wendy. So uh, I think the uh, first uh, topic or, or question, I think it's going to be especially um, relevant for, for you, Wendy, and, and also Bookie. But I think I'll, I'll aim this question at you first, Wendy, just based on, on what you just said. So obviously, you're in the business of, uh, of sales training. So how has, uh, you know, the whole training and onboarding process changed with salespeople now that you're working from home? Well, a lot of our clients actually were already working remotely. My whole business is remote. I've been working, rem I personally have been working remotely for 20 years. And um, the thing, the thing that is important in changing from an on-site environment to working remotely is it's just vitally important to have a process in place for everything. Um, I was uh, doing a LinkedIn Live yesterday uh, with Daryl Perry. We were having a conversation about exactly this and the process you need to have in place. And one of our uh, listeners typed into the chat box that he just tells people to make calls and see what happens. Well, that might work if you're a solopreneur, but that's not really going to work uh, if you're trying to scale, if you're in a remote environment. So it's just vitally important. And one of the things that we do with our clients is help them set up that very step-by-step -step process, what to do, what to say, how to say it, when to say it, every step along the path. Awesome. That, that sounds great. So have you, um, just a question I have for you, Wendy. So have you never done kind of like in-person workshops? Has your training always been remote or? Um, no, I did. I spent many years going on site and about 10 to 15 years ago, I decided I never wanted to leave my apartment. I'm here in New York City. I decided I don't want to leave my apartment unless I need to leave my apartment for something that else. And um, so I started exploring uh, in 2004. I did my first teleclass. It was called Cold Calling College. 
and we had people from all over the country doing this teleclass with us. And, and that's where I've started. And over the years, I've added to it. And I do from time to time uh, still go on site. But the uh, majority of our work, we, we do virtual training all year round. Awesome. That's great to, uh, Bucky, I think you're about to hop in there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I was just, I was agreeing with what, what, what Wendy was saying. I think it's very important to have a process which you can hold, which enables you to hold people accountable um, for what you need them to do as a team. And I think if you, if you don't have that, you fall into uh, lots of problems. Now, I'm a big uh, uh, supporter of milestone-driven um, sales management, which allows you to hold people accountable based on milestones over a period of time. I also think the whole remote world, the shift that we made was had a bigger impact on people's ability to think rationally about selling remotely than they expected. First of all, you know, I can talk about the UK and, you know, um, I think people would wait too, way too long to get back on the phone or get back online and start speaking. And um, this was down to um, people worrying about uh, being insensitive um, during this, the crisis. But actually, if you think about it, when we all made this shift and all these technological changes and so forth, um, especially the larger organizations, um, after about the first week or two weeks, everybody was sort of feeling guilty about not being as productive as they should be. And that's partly down to some of the things um, that Wendy said. So if you were calling them up, if you were a a salesperson and you were making a cold call and you were professional obviously but you were making a cold call at that time beat it to a to a, a FTSE 500 or whatever act ironically they would welcome the call because what it would allow them to do was get their head straight and get into a place where they're being more professional so it actually helped them uh, um, fast track their shift um, so I think one of the challenges in the, in, in the new remote world, which was kind of forced upon those who weren't doing it before, was that they were way too wary of actually doing it. And they missed, a lot of people missed the trick. They could have been building huge pipelines remotely if they'd started a lot earlier. And uh, if you had management that, I mean, I, I, was, well, I was, to my clients, I was telling them to move forward sooner rather than later. But if you had a management team that had a process, it, it makes that a lot easier because you can just hold them accountable for what you need to do. So I, I do agree with, um, yeah, Wendy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to fully support I think. Sorry, sorry. I'd, I'd like uh, to Wendy, piggyback was... on, on what Bookie was just saying because we had clients that were actually telling their salespeople not to make phone calls. And yeah. um, yet what, yeah. what we saw internally and with the clients that were actually continuing to make phone calls is that call, um, the connect rate was much higher. People were much yep. more willing of to course. engage. They were very chatty uh, because they were sitting there in their Less kitchen started. or their living room um, yeah. feeling very alone. Yeah. And um, there was an article in the New York Times about two months ago that said uh, that Ver Verizon reported uh, their call volume was higher on a daily basis than it typically is on Mother's Day, which in the US is the yes. highest call volume wow. of the year. <laughs> they were getting higher call volumes yeah. 
daily. Yeah. Yeah. So Booker, yeah. you're so right. People just made such a huge mistake thinking, and, and they're still making that mistake. They're still yeah. thinking, well, you know, you can't get hold of them because yeah. they're working remotely. Not true. Yeah, yeah. So I don't want to be a calling parlon here. <laughs> Sorry, no, I don't want to be a calling parlon here. But the the the, the dialed connect coverage rate, we 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 process about eight million dials a month on behalf of our installed network of customers Whoa. across every type of enterprise you can even imagine, and our coverage, so the dialed connect percentage, improved through COVID from three and a half percent in January to about four and a half percent, five percent today. Um, that's material, Whoa. right? Because if each one of those connections results in pipeline or trust or the human conversation moving the dial forward on on something, then the the teams that have, have adapted to the remote future and are actually asking people to execute a different motion, using calling as a big part of that is, is probably one of the critical success pillars for the companies that are going to thrive through the remote working environment that, that mm -hmm. we're living in. The companies that are neglecting it, I think, are the ones that are going to fail. So. Yeah, and yeah, it's just, interesting. Just to, so, uh, I ju it's interesting. What? Oh, sorry, sorry. No, it's just I just wanted to add that I think the the pause that that many companies took, and the reason they took so long to start again was because that they were a little bit scared of saying the wrong thing. But I think what it really highlighted is that yeah. the, for the majority of companies, they just weren't being empathetic to the customer in the first place. And I saw tons of advice saying focus on the customer, focus on the customer now. And I was looking at the advice thinking, you should, be, should have been doing that in the first place. So anyway. I, I think another companies uh, paused for so long because they just weren't set up and they weren't agile enough to adapt, mm. adopt their playbooks. And, and I think there is a lot of shaming that goes on, especially in the sales world of LinkedIn. And we'd see people taking screenshots of an SDR who may have made a mistake, um, which, which doesn't help the community. But I think oh, that yeah. did cause some people to be a little bit more hesitant. Just yeah, uh, something yeah. Jerry mentioned that's quite interesting was regarding the connect rate. And just to break that down for people listening, so what was it, Jerry? Three and a half to four and a half percent since the start of COVID. Yeah. Yeah. So some people may not think that's a lot, but imagine if you're uh, someone that called makes you know a hundred dollars a day. Essentially, you're getting one more conversation from that. So that's five more conversations a week. And then obviously, you know, through a tool like Connect and Sell, you could actually be doing more than a hundred dollars a day. So I think um, that is, yeah, really serious impact, which uh, which it's having. Um, just a, a question I have, just just on this note. So, what what do you think about if you've actually got a new hire, right? So you've got a new person in the business, they're working remotely. How do you think? it's changed that a new hire on their first day is not actually going to go into the office. They're going to have to do some kind of remote session, kind of like we're doing now. How do you think that's changed at companies? Mm. And, you know, what's that process for onboarding a new person remotely? Yeah, I've, um, I've got quite a strong opinion that's on this. That's a good this. question. Um, yeah, I think I've got a strong opinion on it for a reason, Michael. I've I've sort of led digital first companies where the office was just a place to be once or twice a week anyway. So for me, the mindset shift hasn't sort of changed particularly. But what I actually think it's seen as an acceleration in, and there was something that Wendy said at the beginning about sort of documenting process. You know, 
if we're honest, 90% of sales orgs are terrible at onboarding effectively. They're terrible at it because there are so many components of it where they can simply defer it. I'll just go and speak to James over there. He knows the answer. Or go and speak to James in operations because you know he, he understands that a bit better. So I think what it's forced a lot of businesses that weren't necessarily documentation focused and process focused to do was actually start to execute that work of calling out what does the job require me to do and how do I make sure that somebody can be effective from day one. I think the second thing that we've seen is the acceleration of calling transcription and analytical technology so that if we've displaced the classic ride along, you know, sitting in the meeting, sitting in the call, going out with your best rep as a big part of an onboarding process and we're able to collapse those conversations into a podcast format inside a tool like Refract, Gong, Chorus, Exec Vision, and give that to our reps to be able to ingest, ask questions, add commentary, identify best practice, identify worst practice and start to level up and get those 10,000 hours of conversations that they need to listen to to become competent at a conscious level. I think actually this remote frontier has accelerated the speed with which reps can come up to speed with content, talk track, subject matter, expertise, objections, playbooks, and the things that ultimately matter, providing they're in the right company that can provision that for them. Now there's a loneliness yeah. delta, you know, yeah. that physical sort of go and touch people, um, shake hands, go for drinks and stuff. But, you know, I think that another thing that I'm quite potentially happy to see with the rise of the remote walking, working culture is how we reframe what culture is inside of companies. You know, most of us have worked around the scale up or the startup environment a lot and culture is a, a, a word that gets thrown about really badly. And for most companies, it means ping pong table, beer taps, dogs at work. But it also is a trade off to 16 hour work days, 18 hour work days in pursuit of an equity event that ultimately won't happen because we know 42% of startups fail due to poor sales execution. Whereas what I think we, we're about to emerge is companies returning culture in a meaningful sense, which is giving people meaningful work that challenges them, that excites them. And it's about the content of the work more than it is about the content of the environment. And then people are free to do what they want throughout their day, providing they're executing the job. Today, today's a really good example for me, right? I woke up this morning, I knew that I'd hit some, some capacity milestones for the week. I had an opportunity to take my car out to get it checked. That took me up until 10 o'clock this morning. You know, now if I was bound to an office and I had to catch that 7 a.m. train into London at 50 minutes of time and 50 quid of cost, I'm getting to work stressed out. I'm worrying about when I get to spend that time on the weekend to do my car. I'm then trading that time in a very different and less valuable way. I haven't lost anything in terms of my working day. I've gained still. You know, I'm going to work through to six o'clock tonight in a way that means that I don't have to rush for the last train. I can just simply roll out of my home office and go and hug my wife, play with the dog, cook dinner, and I still get that time back. And I think people are valuing that a lot more. Mm. Sure. Yeah. yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I think well, one of the, and, and I think, just, can I jump in here? Just on one of the things yeah, you go, were saying, ahead, Jerry, okay. there, the, the whole, yeah, the whole culture, you know, the whole thing about, you know, the redefining what culture is or good work culture is. I think there are also some basics that people have to stick to, you know, just because the world has changed to a new norm, it, there are some basics which never change. And I think defining the criteria 
for the types of people you have will always set you free as far as culture is concerned. And, you know, as a field salesperson, for example, um, you know, there is an expectation that you should be comfortable working alone. So I think when you when you when you uh, uh, diff when you have a very clear criteria, just by doing that, you you automatically shift the expectation of the people that you're going to hire. And then um, in terms of the role, again, this comes back to process and stuff. You, you, one of the things that we're, we encourage people to do is have do RDEs, which we, which we call a role discrepancy exercise. You know, really, does a person understand what is the person's understanding of their role and your role, your understanding of their role as a manager aligned? You know, most people think that it is, but you'd be amazed that if I ask a person, uh, what is your, you know, tell me what your what your job is. They'll say, well, it's to make 50 calls and make sure I get through something like that. You know, well, it's not your job's to close sales, you know, it's to meet target. That's a discrepancy. So I think when you have less of this kind of discrepancy, it becomes easier for you to hold people accountable um, for what you want them to do in a remote environment, which then lends itself to them having the kind of freedom that Jerry was talking about, because as long as they've done what they need to do, um, in terms of closing business, filling the pipeline, etc., um, it's all gravy. You know, does that make sense? Yeah. So that's a, I, I was just sort of, uh, sort of corroborating or sort of aligning with what Jerry was saying there. I think, um, and as again, as long as we have used tools like Refract and so forth, you can pretty much yeah. do everything that you did before um, remotely. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's no excuse with the technology we've got at our disposal nowadays, and that's that's a topic we're going to come on to later. And uh, yeah, Mark, I think you, you look like you've got something to say on the matter. And yeah, I do I, too. I think, <laughs> thank you, thank you, Michael. So yeah, I, I believe so many companies didn't realise how much of their onboarding and training was done purely through osmosis of having people sit next to oh. the current rep or the existing rep, um, and we all know that that just because you're shadowing a rep doesn't mean that that rep's following the processes as they should anyway. So I think by, um, as Jerry yeah. made a great point, um, the companies that are ready for it by having the, the, the defined processes and to Wendy's point before, were the, were the companies that could adapt yeah. as quickly as they did. Um, but I think it just certainly highlighted the fact that osmosis isn't the best way to train and onboard staff. And I hope that changes <laughs> for the long term. Agreed. And uh, the point that I want to make going back to this conversation about onboarding is the number is something like 40 or 50 percent of newly hired salespeople wash out in a year. And hmm. um, so this osmosis process doesn't work. And so having, having an actual <laughs> documented step-by-step -step process with benchmarks, not only uh, to Bookie's point keeps them uh, accountable, but it enables you to make them successful. And so if you want to talk yes. about a good company culture, having a process in place to make people, salespeople succeed is going to go a really long way towards uh, making that a great company culture. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, just, to, just to, just to add on to that, you know, with, when you have a doc, well-documented process and a way for people to communicate with you if they don't understand it, you're able to collect the feedback, the questions, and the things that you need to do to improve those processes for, your, for, your, for the rest of the team. 
uh, when you have that person doing the training in real time, when they ask, oh, how do we do this? They're oh, no, don't worry. You don't have to put in lead source info. It's not a required field. And the people then don't follow the processes. So having that feedback loop is yeah. equally as important in the process uh, to make sure that you're, as a as management and leadership, are continuously improving the process too. Yeah, it's funny because you obviously mentioned before, Mark, about you know customer centric selling. You should have been doing it long before coronavirus. Yeah. And uh, yes, yeah, so it's the same with these processes. I think most most of what we're going to discuss today are things that companies should have been doing anyway, but it just took a, a yeah, global pandemic exactly. for them to realize that how, how serious it was. So just, just moving on to that, that subject actually is, uh, so obviously I think all of us here, so Wendy, Jerry, Bookie, Mark, um, myself, we've been into remote sales, remote working for a long time, but obviously there's many companies yeah. that it was, it was quite a dramatic shift to them. Um, mm -hmm. So what I'd like to hear from, from the panel is, what are some of the big challenges that you've seen from companies that had quite a corporate office culture having to then shift to remote sales and selling from home? Um, so why don't we start with you, Wendy? Well, we've, uh, we've discussed some of it already. That And the first challenge was just this idea that uh, so many of them had that you couldn't call people. And uh, so that, that set them way back. And um, the because so many companies don't have that process that we've been discussing. They don't have that uh, way for people to move forward. When people went home and they're sitting in their living room or they're sitting in their kitchen or their basement or wherever they are trying to sell and they don't even have that, they don't have anything to hang on to because it really, especially yeah. if they are new, because it wasn't given to them. And um, so that's, aside from all the technology challenges, that, that people had uh, the smaller companies getting set up to do this because that was that was a real big problem for a lot of my my clients. Um, but just the human being cost of I'm sitting here in my basement and I don't know how to proceed and I'm not getting direction. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I was going to say yeah. on, on that, if I can jump in, can I? I was just going to- Go ahead, Bucky. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, yeah. One of the things I also found is people would struggle about what, for, you know, for what to say. And I'm thinking, well, it's the same phone that you're on, you know. So I don't know why you're struggling for what to say, right? But people would struggle for what to say, and this and how to say it, and because there was this idea that which I can understand that we're in this pandemic, and you know, should I really be bothering someone? about um, outsourced IT solutions or um, you know insurance solutions when they're trying to survive as a business, when they've got business continuity as their main issue. And then what this led to was people contacting people and reminding them of the hell that they're going through. And uh, you know, people don't want commiseration, they want inspiration. So this idea of whilst you have to be empathetic, what I was encouraging people to do was lead with value, but be empathetic in the process. But don't just call up and say, I know this is the last thing you want to talk about, given what's happening, because, mm. you know, that's just going to irritate the person and remind them of the of what's going on. So I think that was a big yeah. issue. A lot of people go, I don't, you know, I, 
I mean, you know, we all have our approaches in cold calling or account development and so forth. But people were, were calling and saying, look, you know, I know it's probably the wrong time. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, and reminding the person of the, of the bad situation. So I think that was a massive uh, uh, problem with a lot of people. And then the length of the calls, yeah. you know, length of conversations. People logistically got it wrong. You, you know, in a first call, it's very unlikely that you're going to get an hour with someone, even if you've set up an appointment before. Right. Um, people yep. were a lot more flippant about conversations because it's telephone. Right. And you're scheduling it in their house. So whilst um, when you got on the conversation, they may have a call trying to have a conversation for an hour or assuming that a person is going to give you that wasn't going to happen. Um, yeah. So these are kind of things. And also, again, on the logistics and travel issue, the fact that you're not traveling and you don't have to park your car actually was a positive thing because it means you could get across more people and do more calls, secure more telephone meetings, yeah. have more conversations. And I think people just didn't really, this is why process is so important. This is why it's so important yeah. to hold people accountable, give them a roadmap. Um, yeah. I think these are some of the issues that a lot of people, you know, practical issues um, about what I do when I get on the, the Zoom call. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't and agree I more with either of those points. Um, I, I think that the third real observation from the corporate transition, and even even down to the SME and the startup transition, was just how much time is consumed in internal meetings that reduce <laughs> the ability to actually spend time in selling time. And exactly. Honestly, I was observing a lot of our customers that were having meetings about meetings about meetings in order for the meeting to go ahead. <laughs> and what they didn't realize is you've got a once in a generation left opportunity to quickly speak to your customers, reframe your value proposition, pivot back to how it's going to have an immediacy for them right now, and then use those spare capacities from commute time or internal meeting time. Or, you know, I used to be mm. the guy when I worked in an office where I'd go up to Michael and I'd be like, Michael, do you want to come for a cup of coffee and a quick walk around the block? And I'd yes. stop Michael from doing his work <laughs> so that I could talk to him about my problem. All of a sudden, Jerry irritating Michael doesn't exist anymore. So exactly. you know, there was that inability to, to just understand that a sales team only needs one meeting a week, right? It's a meeting which converges forecast and best practice together. And then with Slack and all the other sort of messaging components that we've got in our in our stack today, anything that I need mm. specifically, I can then do it interrelationally one-to-one -one or in a group. And I can get that immediacy yeah. that I need whilst I'm still doing the other stuff. Mm. And I think that was my biggest yeah. frustration was seeing people waste a crisis, you know? And I know that sounds quite hard, but mm. you know, good businesses never waste a good crisis. And the ones that have exactly. gone on to thrive in the past six weeks understood how to remove that friction from their normal process and normal day. And what I'm hoping is that that playbook suddenly gets replicated because the progressive CEO will identify it and go, this is how we need to operate day to day moving forward. Mark, what are, what are some of the big, uh, big shifts you've seen? So I think, it, again, it's going into highlighting culturally what was impacting the businesses. A lot of the large corporates that I was working with at the time they were conscious of can they trust their employees to do the work and you know I just think in in today's age you shouldn't be employing people that you can't trust now obviously you can't find all that out and there there is there is a need to be in an office and certain roles certainly more so than others but the trust issue was just I think a really poor excuse for not having a plan 
and not having the process that uh, perhaps they should have had in the first place. Because if you hire somebody and they're hitting targets and they're, you know, they're motivated, let's say as an individual, yeah. then they'll be able to continue doing that. Whilst Jerry says, nipping out to go and put the car and get it serviced, come back and, and work. Being able to go to the doctor's appointment to do have a regular checkup at 4 p.m. but not have to take off half the day. I mean, it just has so many more positives, but I think there was that fear of not being able to trust the employees. That That's the main thing that I saw. Mark, Mark did you see that yeah. sort of over-index over in any sectors at all? Because I've got a hypothesis on a couple, but I'm curious to see if you saw it in a, a segment or an industry or a vertical, that trust yeah, I failure. I didn't see, I didn't have as much data perhaps as what you worked with, Jerry. So, so please go ahead. Uh, recruitment. <laughs> recruitment could not cope with the fact that their people were no longer at their desk. Yeah. That's, that's funny because on the, uh, on the recruiting side, so, um, company I've worked with, they, what they did is uh, they so they had kind of they had an office essentially or a couple of offices where they would recruit particular people um, and then obviously because the global pandemic happened what they realised is hey we can actually recruit people from anywhere in the world and suddenly the the quality of staff at the same cost has gone up dramatically so yeah. just on the subject of recruitment that's one of the uh, the interesting parts of yeah. of what's happened. Well, um one, one of the reasons why Connect and Sell chose to become a, rem a remote first company all those years ago is we are a classic Silicon Valley Bay Area company, right? Now, when you physically decide to locate yourself in a center of excellence, you're actually limiting yourself to the amount of talent that you can potentially bring into your organization. You're not broadening it out, right? My Silicon Valley rep's going to cost me 150K a year. But the best rep that I've never heard of who lives all the way down in Tennessee, he's only going to cost me 80 and he's probably going to be better. And he's also not going to be looking over the horizon for the next hot start up on the same business park on the I-90 or whatever that freeway is down there. Right. So all of a sudden you've got this opportunity to federate and distribute and be democratic in your in your hiring precision. And you just simply pick grown ups in the best places for them knowing that they're going to do the work <laughs> yeah. right? and you to Mark's point you you hire them on co not competency initially you hire them on can do will do and then competency can fall in line behind that Wendy I've actually got a, yeah. a question for you just because um so Jerry was talking about how his productivity has gone up and also happiness because that hour commute in the morning you know he can either spend working and doing sales or he can spend it with his family you mentioned that I think it was about 10, 15 years ago, you made the shift to trying to do more like remote workshops. Did you find that by doing that, you're able to kind of work with more clients and be more productive? Absolutely. Um, we work with clients all over the world now. And when I started my business, I'm in New York City. I was working with people in New York City. So I would get on the subway or hail a cab and I'd go see them. Um, and so my, my world was quite limited. And once I realized that I could do a teleclass and people in anywhere in the world could come attend my teleclass, it, it was life changing. Um, and that's what really made me start to think about being able to work remotely. And um, we started to shift all of our training 
Um, we, we actually were doing all of our training online for the past five, six years before COVID hit. So for us, at least with that, it, nothing changed. We were still yeah. doing it online. We do it live, yeah. but we do it online. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I, th I think that's uh, the same for all of us. So I think we've been yeah. we've been talking a lot about on the like our side on the sales side. But what I wanted to do is flip it now. So how do you think the buyer's journey has changed with everything that's happened? Either? So the actual buyer's process. Um, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? I know Bookie, you, you had wanted to pop in before. So you're saying, how do I think the buyers? The, so we've been talking about us as salespeople, or like you know some of the teams that we work with, how how they're actually selling. But if you reverse it, thinking about your customer or your buyer, do you think the, yeah. the buying the buying decision and the buying process has changed at all? Well, yeah, I think, look, one of the things that happened when um, uh, when we saw a major shift to, to remote, you know, to remote selling is as part of this fear, yeah, fear of the unknown, people just decided not to buy, you know, the point blank, there was a lot of a lot of companies that put a freeze on doing anything. And that was partially because of, you know, ec economic trends and what, you know, how this all impacted the economy so then the challenge from the salesperson's perspective was to interrupt the, you know i think this is always a, the salesperson's challenge but even more so now it was to interrupt the status quo and become the messenger of change so you had to be even more consultative more insightful in the way that you sold and if you weren't um you weren't able to to, to, to move the buyer to a place where they could um where they would consider investing in doing things new so i think one of the biggest challenges was, was getting people to to move sooner rather than later and i think uh to wendy's point earlier at the beginning a lot of people just from a proactive perspective just stopped selling i mean which i just to me as a sales guy is just like really Right. And, and then you think a lot of these companies are PLC, you know, New York, NY, you know, New York stock Ex quoted on the stock exchange. You can't stop selling. Right. So um, they didn't do anything until, you know, they, what, what I realized is that eventually, some, you know, people will wake up and realize that this is going to affect their share price and um, they will have to be a shift. And so I think um, the salesperson's job the good salespeople, the people that were winning, were able to get their people to that realization sooner rather than later. And this is where the whole insight selling and, and so forth gets in. You know, you, you, you don't want to be order takers. You have to be interrupters of the status quo and give people reasons to change based on your higher understanding. So you're almost getting into the conversation that they're having or they will be having before they have it so that you can give them reasons to change. So I think from that perspective, I think buyers were, were reticent to buy. And so um, mm -hmm. we, we quickly saw who were the good salespeople and who weren't the good salespeople. And it was an opportunity to mm -hmm. actually, well, not encourage people to lay off. There was enough layoffs in this period already, but you know, at least from a training and development perspective, identify where we need help. And I saw that with a lot of my clients. Mm -hmm. I, I think there was, a, there was a big shift in, yeah. I think there was a big shift in I know buyer alignment's a bit of a cliche, but what do I actually mean by buyer alignment? It's it's working to their narrative and their timeline more than to yours. Yeah. You know, for, for generations in selling, we've been told that you have to 
pretty much come up with cheap tricks to try and incentivize somebody to execute a bit of paper at the end of the month or you know and that always reeks of desperation so actually this is a good thing i think um doubling down on buki's point though it's it's about finding the compelling event it's about understanding how to multi-thread it's about understanding who else actually holds the power versus the person that you think holds the power <laughs> so nothing new for good people but inherently an opportunity for companies to document best practice and be just more focused on the, the problem set versus the product set. And I think that that's probably a good net net for everybody. Um, shout out to another tech that I use to help me do that. I, I use a mutual action plan tool called deal point that aligns every milestone in the process yeah. back to my sales. Force. Yeah. And it's this collaboration engine for me and my customer so that if anything changes, they can update that in that proposition with the value proposition still in place and i don't need to do that work manually anymore the good news is though is that we anchor it out far enough downstream that we've got the compelling event from our discovery process in a way that we might not have done before you know if i think about connecting sales proposition the messaging pillar changed quite quickly and quite radically before it was kind of something like this we've got nitrous oxide we're going to put it in your car and you're going to go faster right the transition <laughs> then became well actually what are we going to do for you we're going to we're going to take your best reps we're going to multiply them we're going to give you some capital efficiency but more importantly that we're going to make work from home practical fun and efficient and we're going to give you the leader visibility and control over how that time spent that 90 minutes those two hours and that that was quite transformational but it meant mm. identifying slightly new people that we'd never spoken to before right and aligning to the buyer requirement there and funnily enough it was RevOps in a way that we'd never experienced before you know RevOps suddenly mm -hmm. had a thousand percent uplift in request for understanding the dashboard overnight in a way they'd yeah. never had before so you know I just I just think that hopefully it's about doubling down on the basics and sometimes we get so wrought up in pursuing the deal that we forget about how to anchor the the deal back to what a customer really cares about and so long as you can keep that mm -hmm swim lane open and you can communicate and they can communicate with you the fundamentals haven't changed but the buyer owns a lot of the power base right we we know that we've probably all had to be slightly more creative on term limits we probably all know that we've had to give more in our right. deal we probably have had to sort of size deals down a little bit because the people that are still buying they're definitely buying they just know cool. that you know that there might be plausible alternatives that they can explore and they can hold you to account on that in a way they couldn't before. So I think that that's an observation of six months of quite high velocity work. Mark, yeah. I think you're about yeah. to uh, pop in with a comment before. Yeah, thank you, Michael. So over at Task Drive, we were selling lead research and data enrichment, and a lot of companies froze. So they were they weren't going to make the purchasing decision at this time. They were going to delay it for a few weeks. Um, but rather than just accept that as the answer, we took a very consultative approach to, to, to Bookie's point and we worked with them to understand, well, let us help you change your messaging. Let us help you adapt your playbooks. Let us help you be successful. Um, you know, they didn't pay for any of that and we didn't ask them to pay, but we did it in good faith that when they decided to unfreeze or to de defrost, they would come back to us and say, thanks for the help. We're ready to go now or this playbook is working. But it also gave me uh, that intimate connection with them to find out you know, how are things going? When do you think uh, budgets are going to unfreeze? When is that new decision-making deadline going to be? And, and what else can I help you with? And by doing that, they, they surfaced a number of different challenges that they had, 
And I was able to introduce those people to <laughs> other businesses or other people that I knew that could help them solve a problem. Um, that's pretty much my, that, that's my methodology anyway, but I just feel like that for a lot of companies, taking that creative and consultative approach has paid a lot into the goodwill bank if they did it properly. Yeah. Wendy, what are your thoughts on how uh, the buying process has changed on the buyer side rather than the sales side? Yeah, well, I certainly I'm in, I'm in agreement with our panel and everything we've, we've been talking about. Um, one of the things that we've seen that certainly there were a lot of businesses that just froze. They let people go. They let salespeople go. They froze their budgets. But there were other types of businesses uh, that were still growing um, because they were, you know, we call them essential businesses um, that didn't close. That, um, and certainly uh, the technology companies that were all of a sudden had all of these new customers that needed to uh, send their workforce home, they were growing. And so one of the things that we saw, you know, that we did with our clients is we helped them make that shift. Maybe they needed to go into a different market um, because mm -hmm. there, were, there were industries, not as many, but there were industries that were, that were still growing. And I think, you know, this shift that we've been talking about has been happening for years. You know, back when I started my business, and I've been in business for 20 years, um, and I started doing business development on behalf of clients, you know, they'd give me a directory, I'd flip through the directory, find somebody to call, I'd call them up, set an appointment for my client, my client would go see them. Um, and that was just kind of the way it worked. That was how you introduced yourself to a new potential client. Well, today, uh, buyers, a lot of them, they're doing, and this has been going on for years, this is not new, they're doing the research online, they're, uh, they're looking at things, they're being more proactive, not waiting to be introduced to things. So that has, that has always, in recent years, made it harder for salespeople. And then we have the added piece of COVID, which made a lot of companies just stop. So I have to uh, agree with what Bookie was saying, um, and also and also Mark and also Jerry, that you know, <laughs> consulting, finding that way in. That's why we had to work with all of our clients on reworking their messaging, because what they yeah. were doing before wasn't going to fly in this environment. Yeah, I think yeah. unfortunately, because we've all been remote selling here, all of us for a long time, there hasn't been uh -huh. anyone on the other side of the fence where it's like we need to get mm. back into the office and this up. Because I know there are quite yeah. a few of those those oh, people loads. out there. So yeah, I would, uh, have, would have been good to I've, have I've, I've, Yeah, Michael, I think you're right. I've I've been quite grateful for the fact that you know we don't have any kids in our family yet. Um, we're both professionals, so our days are occupied. We don't have any distractions. We were lucky enough to move out of London five years ago and we've got space. But if I think about a lot of my colleagues who are managing teams of early career SDRs or early career salespeople who are living in shared accommodation in London or Manchester or New York, you know, with flatmates trying to divvy up that space, trying to divvy up that bandwidth. You might not even like those people, right? Don't forget how sort of compromised those sort of shared living arrangements are. So all of a sudden you're putting that Tinder box in place. Plus you've got a number to hit still. You know, you're working for a company that hasn't stopped. Or you're a parent, right? Like I, I feel really sorry for my, my sort of friends who are parents of kids that required education from them, right? 
So I think there's a middle layer of people a bit like us who have the temerity to cope because we don't have those same pressures. And then there are sort of sandwiches of, you know, the working population that have hated this whole experience in a way that we can't appreciate. So I think I think we need to be be fair to the people that might be listening who've experienced that. And, and you know, we can yeah. come across as a bit preachy, right? So <laughs> No, for, for sure. But I, I think this is, um, unfortunately, we've, we've uh, we haven't quite run out of time. So I'm just going to ask one last question and it ties into what you were just saying, Jerry. So obviously there is going to be a point where people do start going into the office, whether that's for a couple of days a week, whether that's full time, whether it's just a certain number of companies, that's still to be seen. So I know the government, for example, in the UK, they're actually encouraging companies to go back to work, but a lot of companies don't want to do it. So I guess my question is for the panel, what do you see as the future in terms of remote work and, and working in an office? How do you see that playing out, you know, over the next three months till the end of the year and also mm. in, um, in 2021? Why don't you start, Bookie? Yeah, that's a really good question, actually. I think, um, I, look, you know, I think um, there's going to be a lot of empty offices in the city. I, 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 you know, I, I definitely think that um, from, from two standpoints, from uh, people, wish there will be a shift to, to to just working from home, yeah. Because it just from a money perspective, um, it's just more cost effective to have people working remotely than having them um, in an office because it reduces floor space, etc. For the obvious reasons, I also think from a lifestyle perspective, more people um, uh, will get comfortable with the idea of working from home. So I think, I, you know, I definitely think. Um, that that will happen. I, I just think that it's, it, the the nature of the salesperson um, is going to be one who needs to be resourceful and effective working remotely in a way that they weren't weren't previously. And um, this extended pandemic is forcing us to get comfortable and cozy and collaborative remotely in a way which we didn't think was possible before. So. To be honest, I think uh, I think as much as fifty percent of the of, of, of sales forces globally will will start, if not more, will 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 um, will, will, will join us. You know, <laughs> will join will, will join the remote world. So I think that's um, you know I, I actually think it's a good thing as well. Just um, psychologically, in, in the way that people deal with each other. If I see your your fridge and you see my fridge, and you're a CEO and I'm a sales guy, I, there's just less of an issue in us having a conversation. We can be a bit more real, you know, and yeah. I think that can only be a good thing sales and the world in general. So I think I think that's really good. And then, you know, you have the, the, the idea of using these like um, chromocast type backgrounds and stuff. Are they going to be adding value or are they going to be taking away from the fact that you can connect better if a person can see you in your digs, so to speak? Um, <laughs> you know, um, as opposed to having some kind of um, false uh, background behind you. So all of these things uh, 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 have an impact. But I think bottom line is, I think this is the new, this is the new norm. And we need to, we, we need to get used to it. Yeah, we're going to be like this for at least two years. And then which, you know, what CEO is going to say, oh, okay, let's go back and, and, and you know, have 100 rooms in a big, uh, uh, a big building in the city, when you know, that's such a massive saving. So this is it. This is it. it. This is as good as it gets, you know, once a week rotating every two weeks going in and out. I mean, this is as good as it gets. The back office will truly be back office because it'd be back at home. So 
there you go. There's my take on it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, Mark, I'm with Bookie. Uh, uh, Sorry, go I'm, ahead. I'm go with ahead, Yeah. The, um, the companies are seeing enormous cost savings in, in their real estate, uh, the, you know, the office expenses, everything. Um, they're doing, they're able to do more with, with less. And I don't see the companies, most of them wanting to go back. Um, and uh, then there are the lifestyle issues for a lot of people. Uh, once we get the school thing figured out, that'll change yeah. Yeah. Uh, for people. So, you know, I'm, I'm you know, Bookie said 50%. I, I tend to think it's maybe more like 30% will be back in an right. office. Gosh, yeah, wow. That's huge. Mark, I think it's, I think, I think it's going to be about flexibility and repurposing a little bit. Um, you know, I think, I don't know if anyone else has seen them, but you get those ridiculous LinkedIn posts where it's like, like if you want to go back to the office, heart if you want to work from home exclusively, or <laughs> light bulb if you want to. So if that's a barometer, I think it's about a 50-50 split between stay at home and find a hybrid, right? And yes. there's been lots of them. It's not statistically robust, but it's just a cheap way to get engagement. We all know that, but they're getting 30,000 of the bloody things. So... I think the truth is somewhere in the middle and I like the idea personally of being able to put your tiger team in a room together for a day because we're still humans, right? We still want to have that contact. Yeah. We still want to be able to yeah. break bread together, you know, toast, toast the successes, lament the failures and analyze them together. You just can't recreate that digitally. And, you know, for a remote first company like ours, you know, we'll do two physical sales kickoffs a year still. Like not this year, we did one yeah. in, in March, but you know, we did our first digital one this weekend and it was exhausting. You know, I'm the outlier, everyone else is in the US. I had to give up my weekend from like 8 p.m. at night on Friday to one in the morning and I had to do that again on Saturday and again mm -hmm. on Sunday, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm not complaining because I love my job, but I think the key point is there that, you know, how do you align this stuff in, in sort of reasonably sized businesses to make those physical interactions count for something somewhere? And also customers of a certain type still are going to want, you know, some degree of physical contact and, and you know, you know, I'm not lamenting the death of the enterprise sales rep who can only do what they do because they're their special sort of stare. But, you know, I think that there's still a, there, there's still a place for it. I think there's still a place for a fish pump and a whiteboard session. And, you know, it's, it's, we've proven that it's not massively imperative because you can still write six and seven figure deals from behind a Zoom call and never meet anyone. We've proven that today. But I, th I think humans are naturally social beasts and giving people the option to maybe just rent a WeWork where you've got one team in one day, one team on the next day, maybe a customer comes in for something, yeah. but it's not about mm. this installed institutionalized space, which is the, the working model of the, the 20th century. Yeah, just yeah. to add to that, and I, I agree um, with, with what everybody said. I just think the, the one word of caution that probably companies need to think about is that this isn't work from anywhere. This is work from yeah. home and actually restricted to your home. Um, you're not really able to go and work from um, a beach. <laughs> not that everybody does that, but you know, you're, you're not able to work from all of these different remote locations. So I think companies are going to have to be a bit careful when, when they do roll out the work from anywhere or work from home policies and say, yeah, it doesn't matter. You can be in Costa Coffee. You could be in a, in a restaurant doing work for two hours in the morning. That's okay now, I believe, with, with those policies. But as things start to open up, and who knows when that will be, 
um, I think that's something, an additional thing that we'll have to factor in is that how far will people go? Because it takes a different type of discipline to work remotely from anywhere. You know, I, I've been, I chose this lifestyle. I've been doing it for the last three years. My brain yeah. is wired. Any restaurant or coffee shop I walk into, I'm like, where's the plug? What's the Wi-Fi yeah. like? And, and yeah. uh, you know, will I be comfortable? <laughs> I feel you. Four hours? Um, but you, yeah. that, that's now a habit for me. Um, it's not. It's not a habit for everybody. So I think just a word, a word of caution there. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point, Mark. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, we're we're out of time. Uh, it's been really great session. Um, thanks to, to Bookie, Wendy, Jerry, and and Mark. And uh, yeah, connect with us all on LinkedIn. Obviously, we're salespeople, so we, we live on LinkedIn. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we'll be back the same time next week. Uh, so 4.30 p.m. UK, 11.30 Eastern um, with four other sales leaders. So look forward to seeing you all then. And thanks again to the guests. Thank Thanks, you, Mark. Thank See you. Ya. Pleasure. Bye. Loved it. Bye. Bye. Take care. Bye.